Walter Valperin, Theo Brass, and Carson Zestuli. This is Fangraphs Audio. My guest on this edition of Fangraphs Audio making his weekly Monday appearance on a Monday. This is a weekly Monday appearance that has occurred, in this case, on a Monday. Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. Dave Cameron is the guest on this edition of the program. As he does every week, Dave Cameron endeavors to analyze all baseball of particular note this week. Every year, a small collection of players show up to spring training and announce that they are currently in the best shape of their lives, their respective lives. Something more than anecdotal evidence suggests that these players do not perform appreciably better than one might have expected them to. However, a new development has occurred in recent years, and these are the players who announced that they have made changes to their swing, whether it be to swing higher or to swing harder. Yonder Alonso is one of these players. He told Eno Saris during the midst of his excellent spring training that he was endeavoring to punish the ball more. This is something that he has actually done at this point in the season. Yonder Alonso has actually recorded 11 home runs, which is two more in his career high, and also inconveniently two more than the number that Dave Cameron cites in this edition of the podcast because Yonder Alonso keeps hitting home runs, and he keeps doing it at such a pace that one cannot keep up. These players, Alonzo and his ilk, are not best shapers. They are swing changers. What do we know about them? Do they appear to have a greater success rate than the best shapers? Who are some other swing changers, etc., etc.? This, these, this forms the core of my conversation with Dave Cameron. Everything emanates from that, like a beautiful sun from which everything emanates, is how mostly it goes. So that forms the base of things. Two largely unimportant notes. I recorded this edition of the program in Canada, specifically Montreal, Canada. I'm not even sure it comes up during the conversation. Also, Dave Cameron's audio quality is better than ever because he learned how to use a microphone. There's an actual fact I'm compelled to say right now during this edition of the podcast. In any case, whether because of his microphone working better or not, Cameron is in particularly optimistic mood, as evidenced by this comment. This worked. Like, congratulations. This, this path led you to where you thought it was going to be. I don't know for sure. It's possible, however, that that optimism is due to the certain knowledge Cameron has that listeners of Fangraphs Audio, just like readers of Fangraphs.com, can show their support for that site by becoming members of Fangraphs.com in exchange for a reasonable sum. Readers and listeners alike can show their support for Fangraphs.com. And for a slightly less reasonable sum, but still in the vicinity of reasonable, readers can acquire an ad-free Fangraphs membership, which allows readers to browse Fangraphs.com without the burden, without the tyranny of banner ads, not only facilitating faster loading speeds, but liberating those same readers from the distortive effects of advertising. With that advertisement having concluded, allow us, allow me to introduce you to this conversation that follows. What is it? It is Fangraphs Audio. Who does it feature? Managing editor of Fangraphs.com, Dave Cameron. And when does it begin? Right now. Most of the, the high school pit prospects, they actually don't even play for their schools, right? Like, they play on these, like, travel teams. And... Well, that's probably true. I don't actually don't know. I don't know how it's arranged here in Canada. I do know that, for example, in France, no one, there's no such thing as high school sports, right? So you're, like, part of a club. Right. Um, I, think I, actually, I think it's similar in Canada, at least in baseball. I don't know about the other sports. But I remember, like, Philippe Amont. Uh, oh, yeah, he, right. When he was coming up. Uh, he joined a travel team that had, you know, like basically took him out of school, and that was one of the reasons. Like when he got to the minor leagues, they were like, "You're not the smartest person we've ever come across," uh, because he essentially traded education for athletics because they didn't. 
they didn't have school sports teams. And I wonder if maybe, um, if maybe in Quebec, because I'm guessing Philippe Amon is from Quebec. Sounds uh, uh, likely, yeah. Yeah, it'd be weird if he was from like Alberta or something. Yeah, it would. Be. Well, so I wonder if maybe, if maybe in Quebec. Now, this is uh, total speculation. If maybe though in Quebec they have maybe more of the European model where you play for a club. Uh, outside of school, and then maybe in the more anglophone territories or provinces, they have a different strategy. We should call Larry Walker and ask him. Yeah, he'd be He's the first. He's probably person. not doing anything. Filippo <clears throat> um, uh, Mott, actually, you know, he played in affiliated baseballs recently as, as last year. Yeah, I think he quit a few times. Yeah, that might be uh, possible. I, I, hadn't I, had, I hadn't really had occasion to think of Philippe Amont. Yeah, um, I think it was Alexis Brednicki who did like a pretty interesting profile on him. Uh, mm-hmm. If you Google Philippe Amont, Alexis Brednicki, it should come up. And what, what, what what's something that we learn from that? Uh, it's kind of just about his um, struggles with, uh, you know, whether this is something he wanted to do for a living or whether uh, he was actually enjoying baseball. Uh, and kind of a look into um, his... Uh, I wouldn't say mental health issues, but like mm-hmm. kind of his uh, personal struggles with the game. I imagine that I imagine that there are a lot of um, players who, if they feel well, even if they feel they do have a route to start in, um, but especially if they don't, if they feel that they do not have that, uh, it's something. Uh, obviously, there's a there's a sort of familiar trope, right? Oh, it's you know, adult uh, getting paid to play a kid's game, but. It's a pretty big buy-in, I think, right? Because you spend a lot of time away from yeah. your family and home and that sort of thing. I mean, I think now that I've had a kid, I realize, like, how many jobs could be described as, like, playing a kid's game. Like, my kid loves excavators. So mm-hmm. anyone in construction, congratulations. You're playing my kid's favorite game. <clears throat> if you're, like, working with heavy machinery, kid's game. Do you feel as though uh, you you have a son? Do you feel as though you... You you made a gendered choice for him, or is he just seemed to be somehow innately drawn to excavators? Yeah, we certainly did not like push excavation love on him. He just <laughs> saw them one day and was like, "What is that giant yellow thing?" And, and uh, now when we like drive to the airport, like there's a decent amount of construction going on in our town, and like every three minutes or so, there's an excavator, and he will He's just pumped. drive to the airport as often as you want him to drive to the airport because there's excavators everywhere. He's a big. He's into that. All right, all right, he's all right. A big fan. Yeah. <clears throat> um. Yeah, earlier this year, we'll say earlier this year. Uh, I don't know uh, exactly what month it was. I think Eno Saris wrote a piece, right, with um, looking at Yonder Alonso. He wrote a yeah. piece with uh, contributions from Yonder Alonso, and um, yeah, Yonder Alonso had a quote in the article. Right, and yeah. um, it was. Um, I think we, we, you and I have spoken about this recently, but the sort of new version of the best shapers, right? Yeah. Those players who come to camp and say they're in the best shape of their lives. The, the, a new version of that is players who come to camp and say, I have a new swing. Yeah, swing changers. Right. Yeah. Swing changers. Yeah, that's, good, that's a good way of phrasing yeah. it. And um, Yonder Alonso was a swing changer. He had a um, – I think Eno maybe sort of picked up on the fact that Yonder Alonso was having an excellent spring. Right. And, of course, there's always some question as to whether that's going to translate. There are, of course, uh, some uh, metrics <coughs> that uh, that one uh, – that from spring that, that might uh, teach us something about how that player will perform in the regular season. But the point is that in addition to the numbers, Alonzo said what? Essentially, he was trying to hit the ball in the air. He's trying to do more damage. How did he phrase it precisely? He said he wanted to punish the ball. Yeah. Which is not something you would say about Yonder Alonzo in the past. 
No, it, it, you, I think you would have, you, you'd have to always concede that he had his virtues as a hitter. Sure. He was a, a guy, he was like a slow, I, I was going to say slow Ichiro, but that's like vastly overstating his abilities. Um, I don't know. He was a slow Adam Frazier. He's a slow Adam, okay, yeah, right, which is, and so, right, and that underscores the point, which is, he was, I think even though he played third base at University of Miami, yeah. and maybe was, uh, maybe when he was coming up with the Reds, they experiment, experimented with him in left field a little bit. And then they said, oh God, no. Right, I'm I think he was always base, destined yeah. for first base. Yeah. And at first base, of course, um, you need something more than just uh, above average contact skills. Right. right. I mean, it, 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 that's not a bad place to start, but if that's all you have, it's uh, right. tough to be a good major league player. Right. Now, what was the – do you remember what the sort of sense was? He was a first-round selection. High first-round selection. I think he was like seventh overall or something. Right. I mean, was yeah. the sense that uh, – well, no, he does not necessarily have uh, great power right now, but we're confident that uh, he'll that he will uh, grow into it. Yeah. I mean, I think uh, he was supposed to have more power coming out of college than he is just – displayed as a pro. He wasn't drafted as a slap hitter, uh, but I do remember when he was in the minor leagues and he wasn't putting up huge home run numbers. It was kind of like uh, I referenced James Loney in the post. Loney is another one of these guys who was like supposed to grow into his power, and when he fills out, he's going to, you know, some of these doubles are going to turn into home runs. So that was the idea with Alonzo as well, uh, and I think he was uh, the centerpiece of a fairly large trade for the Reds when they gave him up. Uh, the, the Matt Latos trade, I think. Um, oh, right, when, yeah, I think right. When, when brought Matt Latos from San Diego to Cincinnati. Uh, they were, you know, considered to be giving up a significant piece of their future in Alonzo. Uh, he was blocked by a guy, a guy named Joey Votto, so <laughs> maybe he didn't have a great future in Cincinnati anyway. Uh, but I think they were, it wasn't like they just gave up on him. He was, uh, you know, a significant prospect in a trade for a significant young pitcher at the time. And I believe he was given quite a bit of playing time when he arrived in San Diego as well, right? Yeah, they basically made him like their franchise first baseman. And mm-hmm. then they said, meh, well, I don't know, I don't know how so sure about this anymore. Right, and he had, I think he had, well, not, I, I think maybe he actually had slightly worse numbers in San Diego. At least that's how I remember it, because maybe some of his contact skills, uh, deprecated too. I, I might be I might be misremembering. I probably am misremembering. Uh, I think his last year in San Diego, he actually only struck out like 10% of the time or something, 11% okay. of the time. It was pretty, his striking rate was pretty low, but he didn't walk in for any power and he got hurt a lot. Uh, right. So right. for first baseman, that's not great. No, it's not late. And so so he was having this spring. Eno Saris talked to him. He said, I'm trying to punish the ball. Did he say anything about getting the ball in the air more? I don't know. I so Eno's, that Eno's quote doesn't directly say, I want to hit more fly balls, but after the quote, Eno said... Um, he agreed with my assessment that hitting more fly balls was a primary goal of his over the winter. So, okay. So, so Eno put now, words in his mouth, and, and Yonder Alonso did not take them out of his mouth. Okay. It's, no one wants to be near Eno's mouth. I think that's the yeah, bottom line. Yeah. The, so, now, with best shapers, what percentage of the best shapers do you think actually uh, go into the season and they exhibit a demonstrable shift from previous years? 5%. Five percent. Okay, yeah, that's a totally made-up number. I have no idea what the actual number is, but that would be my guess. But your sense is it's, your sense that they don't all have career years. It's it's low, yeah. <laughs> right. Um, now, Yonder Alonso states, I've, "I'm making some changes to my swing," and then he goes into the season. And what has happened thus far? Uh, he has hit nine home runs in those first twenty-nine games, which uh, okay. he had never hit more than nine home runs in a season. 
prior to this year. That was his career high. He hit nine in like 150 games in like 2013 or something. Uh, he hit seven last year. He hit five the year before that. So he's now 75% of the way to his home run total of the last two years combined. Uh, he's got a what, 190 WRC+. plus. Uh, he's slugging 700 or something like that. Uh, Yonder Alonso at this point, you know, looks like one of the... In the early season, first part of the first month and a week of the season, looks like one of the best power editors in the game. Not that this will necessarily last, but he looks very different than he has in prior years. Right. And I, uh, I'll append this to your statement is that, um, his previous career high in war, single season career high was 1.1. Yeah. Uh, and of course, we don't necessarily want to go to the decimal, um, in every case, however, it is notable now that he has recorded 1.2 wins. So, uh, so he's already he, had his career year. So these 30 games, yeah. roughly 30 games, have have created a, a career a career best season, um, or at least uh, career tying season in, in a couple of capacities already. Yeah, Yonder Alonso basically has not been good, and then for the last five weeks, for the first time in his career, Yonder Alonso has been a good player. And age three, and that Bowers arrived, and it does seem as though, and I, and you point this out in the, the, the post you wrote for today. Uh, titled Yonder Alonso is the new poster boy for the flyball revolution. Uh, we see a couple things going on in his profile. He's striking out quite a bit more, uh, and he's also hitting the ball in the air more often. Not just more often, but he's become an extreme air ball hitter. So like, if you combine fly balls and line drives, mm-hmm. uh, they basically say non-ground ball batted balls. 75% of the time when he puts the ball in play, it's in the air this year, which is the third highest in all of baseball uh, I think previously he'd been at like 56% or something. So this is like a 20 percentage point increase. Um, he, the only guys hitting the ball in the air more often than him are Trevor Story and Ryan Schimpf, both of whom probably hit the ball in the air too much. Uh, they're kind of at the very end of the extreme of launch angles, and um, they're probably getting under the ball too often, which is one of the reasons why Stor- Schimpf's hitting like 130 and Story's hitting like 180 or something. Uh, Alonzo is the only guy kind of at this level of air ballness who's also making loud, solid contact, um, and, you know, there's certainly an upper range at which launch angle can go too extreme. Alonzo might be close to it, but so far, in the first five weeks, he, he seems to have found kind of the sweet spot of, like, he's getting the ball up, but he's not getting under it. Right. Okay, so a couple a couple of questions I have there. Now, uh, as you note in, in this piece, uh, Travis, Travis Sotrick has dedicated roughly half his posts uh, s- since joining Team Fangraphs to the idea of launch angle. He sent me a message after the post went up and said, should I stop writing about fly balls? And yeah. I, I encouraged him that I was just kidding. No, no, of course. Yeah, yeah. And, well, he's a very sensitive uh, young man. Um, he doesn't I don't know. Really I don't know. I mean, he's my age. I wouldn't consider – I don't consider myself a young man. So No, you yeah. – uh, what age do you want to – whatever age you want to uh, call him, it's fine. He's sensitive. He's a sensitive person. Okay. Yeah. I'll take your word for it. Yeah, yeah, I'm yeah. not sensitive to the idea that he's sensitive. No, I don't think you're sensitive to much. Yeah. I'm not he, sensitive to anything. Yeah. He dedicated uh, both of his posts on Friday to to the two fly ballinger uh, players whom you've just invoked, Trevor yeah. Story and Ryan Schimpf. Now, of course, Schimpf. It's surprising the extent that he has some. It's surprising to the extent that he has somehow increased upon his fly ball percentage or his ball and air percentage, right? Which essentially. Which was already um, to the extreme level, yeah. Which was already to the extreme, right? And I think that Eno Saris had written a piece this winter at some point. It was like, it's. He's still going to hit a lot of fly balls, but clearly it's impossible for him to, to uh, um, uh, go any further in this direction because no one ever has. Right. Ryan Schimpf has found a way to continue doing that, at least for the, through the first months of the season. Um, uh, one question that. 
that Travis asks um, when, when he's writing about Trevor's story is, is it possible to go too far in this direction of hitting the ball in the air? Um, so far, given Story's uh, batting line, the, the answer is possibly yes, right? And Now, if nothing else, it has an effect on um, a, a player's batting average and ball in play, right? Because you get a lot of balls in the air. Um, that means typically balls that are more easy to field, unless they're leaving the, the park, obviously. What, what are the sort of what do you see as being any of the other consequences of such a drastic approach? Yeah, I mean, I think it's not a coincidence that Schimpf and Story have significant strikeout problems. Um, you know, so when you're you're uppercutting the ball like this, um, and you have a you know. Uh, a bat plane that is angled towards elevation, you're gonna swing under some balls. I mean, it's just, you know, if you don't time it correctly, if you're not, um, perfectly on plane, you're gonna swing and miss a lot because your bat, the, your, your bat is not in the zone, uh, in a way that you're gonna make weak contact. You're either gonna crush the ball or, or miss. That's the trade-off you're making. Um, uh, whereas if you kind of have a more flat bat plane, that's how you get high contact numbers, is you can uh, more more easily put some part of the bat on the ball, but you're going to trade authority of contact uh, for frequency of contact. So um, when you kind of have this more uh, uppercut swing, you're, you're going to increase your swings and misses. Story and Schimpf both strike out a ton. So not only are they going to get a lot of outs on on balls that don't go over the wall, uh, but they're going to swing and miss far more frequently. That's one of the reasons why Alonzo's contact rate is down uh, significantly. But interestingly, at a 22% strikeout rate with power, I mean that's league average, league average strikeouts and a lot of power. That's a that's a pretty good combination. You'll take that. Right. Well, the sense is right that he that he's always had a discerning eye at the plate. Right. right. Yeah. So so he's the sort of best type of player maybe to gain this type of skill even if it does uh, even if part of the trade-off is strikeouts just as a brief aside if you were attempting to arrive at what you thought like a a prospect strikeout rate might be would you consider the main factors to be essentially ability to tell balls from strikes um uh, hand-eye hand-eye ability right and then um bat path or, you know, playing through the zone where so even if a guy does have maybe um, good hand-eye ability to, is that what it, hand-eye? Hand-eye coordination. Hand-eye coordination, yeah. Hand-eye coordination, ability to tell balls from strikes, see, read pitches generally, and then and then the, 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 the plane of the swing. Are those the three major factors? I mean, you probably put like swing aggressiveness in there too or swing um, velocity maybe. Like mm-hmm. the harder you swing the more likely you're going to swing and miss, right? So, like, Giancarlo Stanton swings the bat really hard. Right? And so uh, I don't think he has, like, a significant... Like, his bat path isn't really his thing. He's not uppercutting the ball. He's just swinging with all of his might, and as a massive human being, um, it's more difficult to kind of uh, adjust the path of the bat if he tells, like, as he begins his swing, oh, like, I'm misreading this, where a guy like Ichiro, who just kind of, like, you know, flicking a toothpick around, he could, like, stick the end of the bat out and kind of, um, you know, fl- slap the ball the other way. If you're kind of in full force swing for the fences mode, you're not going to be able to do that. If the ball is not exactly where you thought it was going to be, you're going to miss. It seems as though there are certain players, now, of course, Alonzo's main comment, his main contribution to that piece by Yonoseris we, we mentioned was that he's going to be? What was the what was the exact verbiage he used? He wanted to punish the ball. He wanted to punish the ball. I feel like there have been certain players who've just decided to swing harder. Yeah, and I think was Zach Cozart maybe one of right. them. Yep. Who was it? Like Barry Larkin was like, you should swing. 
you should swing. I don't know if it was Barry Larkin. Someone, it was like a veteran player or a retired player. It was like, you should swing harder. And yeah. then he did started swinging harder. And what, for, over the last like two or three years, that Cozart has probably been one of the best hitting shortstops in the majors, I mean, when, especially when he's been healthy. He's had right. problems yeah. staying on the field. Is there, uh, how is this, how is it that a player can get up to the major leagues and the comment that changes his life essentially is swing harder. Yeah, <laughs> right. It seems like a, a dramatic oversimplification for such a significant change. But I do <laughs> think there's been a you know, and probably continues to be, especially uh, in the amateur levels, um, kind of a culture around not striking out. That is, uh, when you're young, the worst thing you can do is strike out. It, it belies some kind of lack of ability, and you would rather, you know, like you'll you'll constantly hear coaches, announcers, whoever say, put the ball in play, make the defense make a play, uh, you know, at least if you're putting the ball in play, you're going to move runners along, something good might happen, they might make an error. Uh, whatever you do, don't strike out. And that is taught to kids from a very young age. So if you have some degree of talent, uh, you know, like any of these guys in the major leagues, Zach Cozart, Justin Turner, whoever, uh, even if they weren't big power hitters when they were younger, uh, they had some natural ability, but you know, bat ball skills. So this idea would work for them because they had some natural ability and, and so they were able to, you know, regularly put the ball in play and put it in play with enough force to, to be a productive player and they could do enough other things on the, on the field well to get to the, you know, professional leagues and then eventually to the major leagues. There wasn't necessarily, uh, reason to change, right? Like you, this is what you've been taught since you were seven and now you're in the big leagues. Like this worked. Like congratulations. This, this path led you to where you thought it was going to be. Um, and then it took until what it was, it was 29 or 30 or something for someone to be like, yeah, maybe there's a better path that would have gotten <laughs> you to the majors as an, as an even better player. If you just try to hit the ball a little bit harder and don't just settle for singles. And uh, clearly there are a group of players who shouldn't do this? Like Jose Peraza probably shouldn't swing any harder. Right. Um, Billy Hamilton, you know, these are the there are Ben Revere. These guys do exist, and that this advice might not be helpful to everyone. But I think for like the great majority of major league players who were, you know, way more than 140 pounds, this is not a bad idea. You know, you you bring up an interesting point too. The especially at, at the at the lower levels, really every lower level where contact is maybe the, the thing that differentiates the best players from everybody else, yeah. right? Because it's like they they can keep up with velocity. Right. Um, they have a ju- they just have the the hand eye coordination, which is the phrase for which I was searching desperately before. Um, to to proceed, they they just get it. They have that sort of athleticism. I've often thought about this with regard to something like bunting, for example, or maybe the fetish that um, certain quote unquote baseball men have for base running and stolen bases. Is that sometimes the the tools for assessment that work at every other level, the strategies that work and maybe are even desirable at every other level, those start to fall apart when you get to the major leagues and where, yep. for example, defenses are fantastic. Because right. even watching a bunch of college baseball, you see bunting. You see yeah. bunting everywhere. Right. And it even it's, it's very possible that even at the college level, um, it, it's, it has diminishing returns, you know. But at the same time, the, the field, uh, the quality fielding at the college level is not as strong. So in many cases, if you bunt a ball decently well, and you know you have the type of guy who's playing third base in college, which is not usually Evan Longoria, vintage Ryan Zimmerman, uh, Nolan Arenado, you know, it's usually a guy who sh- who probably should be playing first base, right? Right. Yep. 
if you bunt to him, the chances that he's necessarily going to be able to deal with a, a, a quick runner, uh, throwing him out of first cleanly, uh, they're lower. Yeah. And th- so this point you bring up about <clears throat> about the um, what what guys have been told all the way up through the ladder, but then but then uh, is good. And I think that it, and it leads to the second point, which is the tools for assessment at the major leagues. The strategies are maybe just they don't they're they don't, they're not similar in some cases. They're not represented in any of the lower leagues uh, leading up to them. Yeah, I mean the incentives are obviously very different if the error rate for a third baseman is thirty percent versus one percent. Right? Like at that point, if like if you're in little league, there's probably one guy on the other team who can field, and he's probably playing shortstop, mm-hmm. and everyone else on that field is a liability. And if you can hit the ball their direction, yeah, you probably have a better than 50-50 chance of being safe at first base, at least in like non-competitive, like we're not talking like Little League World Series, just like your random Little League around America. Um, so if you if you learn the game that way and you think like this is how the game is played, then other strands of the game might look foreign to you or might look like some, you know, bastardization of the game you fell in love with when you were a kid. But the reality is like once you get like 240-pound men uh, you know, like Giancarlo Stanton types like swinging for the fences. This is a different game. Like baseball yeah. in high school is not baseball in the major leagues, and um, the incentives to, to for different strategies are are uh, uh, not the same. The parks are not the same. The fields are not the same. Um, you, I, I think we can like say like in general the rules are the same, mm-hmm. but the sports are different. Yeah, it's a different. It is a, a bit of a different sport. It, uh, and it's funny that you mentioned that, that being able to see like the types of players who end up in the majors as opposed to the sort that you see on the way up to there. It, it, it's uh, in a similar way you see this in the draft where like the types of players who are taken in the first round out of high school, how like those are guys you just like they they just don't end up in college. Do you know what I'm yeah. saying? Yeah. It, it, and how that affects the game too. It, I, I've been struck by that, I guess, as I've become more well acquainted with college baseball and a little bit more with the draft and the types of players you see there but like the guys who get plucked out of high school you know prep prep guys in the first round like there's a kid now hunter green who's from the san diego area um who's like the best pitcher and the best hitter in the draft right and he plays shortstop right like there's no way he's he's going going, to college he's not going to college no and it's just like he is on a different plane athletically and i was talking about this with eric longanagan recently we were talking about where first basemen end up Right, um, or where third basemen end up, we went through a whole bunch of college like guys who played college third base, and some of them are, you know, yeah, some of them are Anthony Rendon, who have who are pretty good fielders, right? Yeah, and then some of them are DJ Peterson, right, who was at ASU selected by the Mariners and was like going to be a first baseman immediately. Yeah, and then the, well, the one about whom we were speaking was Nick Senzel, who's like this, he is like more than any other third base guy or third base prospect before him. He has occupied this kind of nether nether space, but um, the guys that come out of high school, like high school, you actually find for no, no guys who play co- who play first base in college almost never make the major leagues. It's just a fact. Yeah. And, um, they they typically were third basemen. They were corner outfielders, but but high school first basemen actually do make the major leagues. Anthony Rizzo, for example, and it's because like you could tell. I I mean I probably can tell, but. Um, discerning minds could tell that his level of athleticism, strength, contact ability was just like miles ahead right. of every of his peers. You know? well, so I wonder if that's just a sorting mechanism. Like the guys who 
are left-handed throwers, who the only infield position they can play is first base because mm-hmm. of the, the physics of the diamond. Um, if the really good left-handed throwers get selected early, so the only left-handed throwers who go to college are the unathletic ones. Oh, that's yeah. That's, uh, that would be very interesting to look at what happens to left-handed throwers. We had we had some other examples for first baseman. Um, Joey Votto is a lefty thrower. Uh, that sounds throw? sounds right. Probably true. <laughs> He's a lefty batter who plays first base, so you would think that's that's probably true. Now, do you, he actually throws right-handed. Oh, does he really? He does. We don't know. We this is like one of the ten best players in baseball. We don't know what hand he throws. <laughs> Welcome true, though, to our baseball it? podcast. Yeah, that's fine. You that's should fine. totally listen to everything we have to say. <laughs> um, that's interesting. So he could have theoretically played another position, but um, uh, yeah, but uh, but uh, but obviously he was drafted out of high school. And uh, it was, you know, like... Oh, we actually should have known that because I think they met, the Reds actually drafted or used Votto early in his career as a catcher. And you don't oh, see lefty okay. throwing catchers. You don't... Oh, that's a good point. So that's we, the should, Car- we, should, that's we the, should have known that Votto was a right, righty thrower. That's the Carlos Delgado uh, career path, right? From catcher to first base. That's yeah. what's so scary about... Well, that's what's so scary about looking at catchers, like trying to say, oh, this catcher is like a good prospect. Right. Because if... If he doesn't stick at catcher, he is. It's a long fall to first base defensively. Right, but the, the interesting thing is, like some of these guys, uh, like Bryce Harper, right? Like you know, not a long fall. Bryce Harper is one of the five best players in baseball, even after getting moved to the outfield. There are guys who catch for reasons that uh, have nothing to do with kind of like maximizing their overall value because they're not going to play anywhere else. And it's like you know, Craig Biggio might be another one of those guys would have been a star anywhere on the field. Buster Posey probably. Mm-hmm. Um, these guys were just such transcendent talents that like the catching was a bonus, I guess, or in Harper's case, not a bonus, but like you didn't, they didn't need to catch to be superstars. Right. Yeah. Uh, w- one last question. We talked about punishing the ball and how players have adopted this, you know, it, again, it seems like it's a very easy suggestion or, you know, simple suggestion, swing harder. Yeah. And yet it works. Um, you you wrote, I think, last week at some point about Xander Bogarts, a player who was known uh, for his bat, or you know certainly his bat relative to his positioning. I don't know. I think that there were some, maybe there still are some who think that he's not a permanent shortstop, and I think it's probably because he's physically he's pretty big, right, for for the he's position. Tall. I mean, he's not yeah. like bulky, but he's tall. Right. Uh, but he's he seems to be playing a decent shortstop at least yeah. the first couple of years of his career. Um, what he has not done is uh, at least this this season certainly has exhibited as much power. He's still hit quite well though, and he seems isn't hasn't his exit velocity speed like dropped by a couple miles per hour? Yeah, especially on air balls. Uh, like if someone needs to tell Xander Bogarts to swing the swing the bat a little more ferociously. Uh, I don't know. Like in the comments of the. The post, a lot of Red Sox fans were talking about how his swing is very different now than when he came up, and he's basically had a career of adjustments where he got to the big leagues, he struck out too much, and, uh, you know, he was taking the wrong pitches and, and swinging at the wrong pitches, and, and now he's controlling the zone but not hitting for any power. And it seems like Bogarts is a guy who's been constantly tinkering for four years in the major leagues, uh, and kind of shifting around his skill sets, kind of like Alonzo is now. Um, but doing it earlier in his career, and it'll be interesting to see if Bogarts can kind of find a happy medium where he's like, well, I used to hit for power. Maybe that's still in there somewhere. You would think it is. And then he's figured out how to make contact. Can he figure out how to do them at the same time? Uh, remains to be seen. That would obviously be the ideal. Okay. Uh, last thing about which I'll ask you uh, before we go, before you've fulfilled your, your obligation, is this. 
Um, you have uh, Dave. No, no, so the, the Cincinnati Reds. You're not the Cincinnati Reds. Um, the Cincinnati Reds are in first place in the NL Central. They have the best run differential in the NL Central, and they have a better base runs differential, um, not only than their run differential, but, of course, better than everyone else. The Reds, I think, were supposed to probably finish. They were going to be in a serious heated contest with the Milwaukee Brewers for last place yeah. in in the NL Central. They're still in a heated contest with the Brewers, just not for last place. No, yeah, this, this is... These teams are bunched up considerably, and they're not really supposed to be, right? I mean, it's really supposed to be the Cubs ahead of everybody else, yeah. with the Cardinals lagging behind, the Pirates somewhere there, but they've been yeah. depleted by injury, and then the Reds and the Brewers at the bottom. Uh, uh, can you just, in 30 seconds, can you summarize what's happening? Uh, I'd say two things are happening. Eugenio Suarez and Adam Duvall, right? So, like, uh, Suarez uh, previously was a, a fringy prospect who they played at shortstop for a little while when Kozart was hurt. Uh, moved him to third base because he wasn't good defensively. And they didn't really have the bat for a corner guy. He kind of looked like a utility infielder or, you know, fringe starter. Except now, Eugenio Suarez is controlling the strike zone, hitting for a ton of power. Uh, as I noted in the Alonzo post, Suarez is... Um, still in the top 10 and expected Woba, so it's not that his performance is, you know, just a bunch of balls falling in. He's legitimately hitting the crap out of the ball. And also, I think Jeff Sullivan's going to write about this, this this week, he might have turned into a really good defensive third baseman. He's improved dramatically uh, in the field. Um, so Suarez looks like he might be a core player for them now. Adam Duvall, who they got as kind of like a throw-in uh, in uh, what a trade with the Giants a couple years ago, has turned into a really good defensive outfielder who also hits a bunch of home runs. So those two guys kind of surrounding uh, Joey Votto and Zach Cozart uh, have given the Reds a legitimate offense. There's still no pitching there. Like, this is not a team that's going to uh, keep runs off the board, but with Suarez and Duvall around as like quality players, this is now a, a pretty good, pretty good offensive team. Are they still using their strategy of um, introducing Iglesias and uh, Rizal Iglesias and Michael Lorenzen into high leverage innings whenever? Yeah, they don't, whenever they they're want. basically not saving their two best relievers for the ninth inning. They'll use them in you know fifth, sixth, third. I think uh, you know they'll they'll come in at any point in the game when they feel like they need to use those guys. And also, they just have a player, a pitcher, Wandy Peralta. Yeah. Who throws 96, has struck out almost half the batters he's faced, and yeah. is not walking anybody? Yeah, their bullpen, which was atrocious last year, has actually been okay this season, which certainly helps. Uh, their starting rotation is still bad. Uh, and, uh, you know, this is not a team that's going to pitch themselves into the postseason. But with a decent bullpen and a score a bunch of runs, like I think this, this weekend against the Giants, they scored 31 runs in three games. Mm-hmm. You don't need great pitching to win games like that. The Reds have... Um, by just a uh, fit base war, they have the tenth best reliever war um, in in the league r- or right now. Um, in terms of strikeout rate, they have the fifth best. These are not necessarily uh, things one could have anticipated entering the season. Yeah, yeah. Pitching right. not terrible, offense good. So uh, I guess the idea is swing hard. Swing hard. Work for Jack Cozart. Seems to be working for Alonzo Alonso. Yeah. Might not work for Billy Hamilton, but everybody else swinging hard. All right. You think Jesse – well, we're talking about the Reds a little bit. This is the last dumb question I'll ask you. Should Jesse Winker start swinging hard? Probably. I think any of these low-power, moderate-contact guys like Nick Barkekis, maybe he mm-hmm. should swing harder. I mean, it's not going to work a career. Him, right? I mean, he has had a career. He made quite a bit of money. Yeah. Well, Yonder Alonso's made some money, right? I mean, yeah. not, not broke. Yeah. All right. You're done, Dave Cameron. You've uh, fulfilled your obligation. Does that, does, that sound, does that satisfy you? Yes, I, I uh, feel fulfilled. 
fulfilled. Okay. All right. Well, let's get on to uh, let's get on to things. Uh, we'll say this. I'll say thank you, Dave Cameron. You're welcome. And I'll say that has been Dave Cameron, managing editor of Fangraphs. I'm Carson Sestouli. This has been Fangraphs Audio.